Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a great Savior in that you sent your Son, Jesus, into the world to die for sinners like us who deserve only hell and condemnation. And yet we are here because of your grace, your unmerited, undeserved favor shown to each of us who have put our trust in Christ in the person and the work of your Son, our great Redeemer, who bought us out of the marketplace of slavery to sin, and now we belong to him. Father, help us even this morning as your children, who have been saved by your grace, to be sanctified by your grace and by your Spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts to understanding these wonderful truths that we're going to look at this morning. Give us soft and tender, teachable hearts to the words of our Lord here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50 is the text that we've been looking at for a couple of weeks now. And we will be doing a part three of this particular message two Sundays uh, from now. Uh, Next Sunday, I'm going to be doing a a special Mother's Day message, and we'll finish our text, this particular passage, two weeks from today, okay? But I want to read Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. This is the Word of God. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, it was the year A.D. 64 or 65 approximately when the city of Rome was mysteriously burned, um, burned down. Major catastrophe in history that's recorded for us. And most Roman citizens at the time believed that the wicked emperor Nero had been um, responsible for having done that act. And so the wicked um, Nero um, blamed Christians at the time, knowing that he was guilty, he blamed Christians for this act um, on the city of Rome. And at that time, great persecution broke out to where our brethren in the first century experienced great persecution. Many of them were executed, tortured, suffered greatly, put to death. Many of them suffered great loss of property and of fellow loved ones and all of that. And just an atrocious time for our brethren. And 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter, wrote the letter of 1 Peter 
to encourage and comfort his suffering fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And even though they had experienced such great atrocities, he wrote to them to comfort them in chapter 1 of 1 Peter about the great salvation that they needed to rejoice in, in light of the fact that Jesus had come, they had great hope, even though they were facing great persecution or the beginning of persecution. And he also wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. Listen to what he says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That last part there, you shall be holy, for I am holy, appears three different times in the book of Leviticus written some 1,500 years before Christ, where God at the time told Moses, gave him instructions about how the people needed to, to worship him and, and even called them through Moses to be holy people in the light of the fact that he is a holy God. In the face of great trials then, Peter too, years later, in the face of great trials and suffering, tells his fellow brothers and sisters not to be giving in to sin in the midst of the difficulties that they face, But by God's grace and by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, they were to pursue holiness if indeed God was their heavenly Father. And we've been seeing even here in Mark, haven't we, that our Lord Jesus puts a high importance on the holiness of his people, on the holiness of those who call themselves followers of his, disciples of his. And this is where we left off last week. Considering here in this particular passage that we just read, some kingdom principles that our Lord teaches his disciples and us by way of application, if we are to live in a way that glorifies him and to have an impact on this earth. And if you remember, we said that the Lord Jesus is approximately six to nine months or so away from his death and his resurrection. And he's in prep mode with his disciples. He's already taught them a lesson on humility in our previous passage. But also we saw that the first kingdom principle that he calls his disciples to in this particular passage in verses 38 through 41 is the kingdom principle of love. They are to love one another. This is a love motivated by an attitude of humility. If you remember, they were arguing with one another, debating who was the greatest. And he took a little child to himself and said, you need to receive the kingdom as one of these little children in humble dependence. And you need to cultivate this kind of humble humility in the way that you treat one another, putting others before yourselves. And so it's a love that is expressed or shown in their service and acceptance of one another as partners of the same kingdom, as part of the same team, the kingdom principle of love. Second is the kingdom principle of holiness. We began looking at this particular kingdom principle last week in verses 42 to 48. And this one we said is twofold. If you're taking notes, last week we talked about the fact that as Christians, Jesus teaches his disciples and us as Christians that we must not lead other Christians into sin. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones, and note, who believe, that is followers, believers he's speaking about here, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. 
The heavy millstone was a reference to this massive stone used for grinding grain. And it was so large that it took a large animal to turn it or a powerful animal to turn it. Sometimes these stones were as large as 2,000 pounds. And so Jesus says, better that a 2,000 pound grinding stone be tied around your neck and you be cast into the sea than for you to be the cause of sin in someone else's life and to lead another Christian into sin. Strong words, severe warning given by our Lord Jesus Christ. And last week we were reminded of some of the ways that we can influence others uh, um, and lead them into sin. Though ultimately, yes, everybody's responsible for their own personal sin. We can be the cause or influence of other believers falling into sin if we're not careful. And then we also considered some ways that we can help others in the pursuit of becoming more and more like Jesus. Of being more and more holy. And so that was verse 42. And now... If you're taking notes, in verses 43 to 48, still on this kingdom principle of holiness, we want to see that Jesus also exhorts us to holiness by taking our own sin seriously. By taking our own sin seriously. It isn't that the Christian is perfect. It isn't that the believer or the follower of Christ is free of struggle by any stretch. And we can all give a hearty amen to that as believers. That there's a way, a a battle waging every single day of our lives as believers within and expressing itself from without on, on the outside and our outward behavior as far as the struggle and the fight against sin. It isn't that Christians by any stretch are free from struggles. The difference between the Christian and the non Christian is that there is a fight in the life of the believer. The Christian longs to be holy. The Christian desires to be like Jesus. The Christian responds to the the amazing grace of God in having sent Jesus into the world out of his great love to die for our sins and pay for our sins. The Christian responds to that amazing grace of God in the person and the work of Jesus by loving obedience, in grateful obedience, with a desire to be like Christ. That amazing grace is what fuels our desire and our passion to be like Jesus Christ. And I think it's those wonderful gospel truths that undergird for us Jesus' warning here to believers in verses 43 to 48. Now, as we look at these verses, notice three things. These verses that we've read already are three things to highlight for us this morning in verses 43 to 48. First... Jesus reminds us of the reality of our struggle with sin, if you notice. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble. Verse 45. If your foot causes you to stumble. Verse 47. If your eye causes you to stumble. Stumble, that is to fall into sin or be entrapped in sin. Three different times, the Lord points out the the real possibility, the reality that we will struggle with sin. Now, the Lord Jesus is not speaking here about literal body parts. He's speaking figuratively. He's speaking metaphorically of the entirety of our life. Look at verse 43. Your hand is what you touch. Your foot is where you go in verse 45. Your eye in verse 47 is what you see and look at and enters into your mind. 
These speak of the, of the totality of our lives as Christians. And we know that he's speaking figuratively here also because ultimately our bodies simply become the willing agents, the servants, if you will, of our sinful hearts from where all wickedness ultimately comes. In fact, if you remember, and you will turn with me back to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Just a few pages back. Jesus spoke of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders confronting the the Pharisees for their externalistic hypocrisy and their man-made traditions. And he had a lesson for his disciples. In verse 20 of chapter 7 of Mark, he was saying to his disciples specifically, that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things, he says, proceed from within and defile the men. Jesus was saying, it's not about those external things ultimately. These religious leaders honor me with their lips on the outside, but their hearts are far from me. Far from me. It's about the heart. You want to deal with your sin, Jesus is saying. You need to go to the root source of the problem, which is your heart. The central control system where desires and attitudes and motives are. And root out the sin from there. More than anyone, the Lord Jesus knew that we must first address the issues of the heart if we want to deal with our sin. But what happens is, so oftentimes in the name of not wanting to be legalistic, not wanting to be rigid, appear rigid in our pursuit of holiness as Christians, we trust ourselves. We place a lot of confidence in ourselves and we become proud. We don't wisely set boundaries for ourselves so that we are not led to compromise. The root of self-trust is pride. And Proverbs 16, 18 tells us what pride ultimately leads to. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Jesus knows this. So he's been addressing the issue of pride in his disciples, even in this text, that they need to be humble men who cultivate a heart of humility. And this is going to show itself even in the way that they deal with their sin. And that's the case for us too. So notice, secondly, that there's an action that Jesus calls for. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Verse 45. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Verse 47. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. All three of those, cut it off, cut it off, throw it out, are commands, imperatives in the original. They are commands by Jesus to definitively deal with our sin precisely because we're able to, because the Spirit of God has indwelt us and empowers us by His grace to do so. Again, he's speaking figuratively here. But beloved, the language is is severe. The Lord Jesus is speaking of spiritual amputation here. To cut off and throw out highlights the the drastic measures, the severe measures that you and I need to take by the grace of God against our sin in the Christian life as followers of Christ. It's graphic and morbid language. And that's the Lord's point. 
Because he wants to get our attention. And so you and I need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here right now. You young people need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. You kids need to pay attention to what our Lord is saying here. Sin is so serious, so relentless, so set on hurting you and destroying you that you need to take aggressive, severe, decisive action against it. And if you are a believer, you have been empowered to do that by the indwelling Holy Spirit. To walk in holiness before the Lord. So there's a reality of the struggle, the action that is to be taken. But please notice third, last but not least, that there's a warning given here to us. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And here's the warning. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, verse 47, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What is our Lord saying? He's saying, take your sin seriously. Take decisive action against it. For if you don't, there are eternal consequences for choosing not to do so. The Lord Jesus is saying, take your sin seriously so as to drive you to action or go to hell. Go to hell. And I want us to stop right now and ask the Lord, in light of the seriousness of these words, in light of these warnings, I want you to stop right now and In a figurative way, so to speak, put your heart on the table before the Lord. And say, Lord, what are those issues in my heart, in that place where only you and I can see, what are those issues that you want me to address today and take decisive action by your grace against, that I would not compromise anymore as your child by the grace of God? Can you do that this morning? Can you plead before your heavenly Father and ask him, to open your spiritual eyes to see those, those wicked ways in you that you need to put off so that you might be able to put on Christ, practically speaking. You see, because the true believer at this point looks at these warnings and says, you know what? Wow. I want to continue dealing with my sin. If this is what my Lord Jesus wants me to do, I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I have struggles. But by God's grace and by the Spirit of God, by the strength that the Lord gives me, I want to proactively pursue Jesus by putting off my sin. I want to take this seriously. The genuine believer doesn't play down the seriousness of his sin at this point. Coddle his sin. Laugh at sin. Hide sin. keep, Keep it secret. Avoid sin. Pretend that it's not there. Sweep it under the rug. 
The follower of Christ, the Christian, understands that sin is serious, that sin harms and destroys not only the one committing it, but other people as well, harms others. The Christian understands that there are deadly consequences for coddling known unrepentant sin, and that Christian wants to deal with it at all costs. That's the work of the Holy Spirit prompting your heart to do that. Believer, And please, I plead with you this morning, pay attention. Especially those of you who who are not followers of Jesus. Pay attention to, to what he mentions here. He mentions hell three different times in this text. And emphasizes the eternal forever nature of the consequences of going to hell. And I want you to pay attention to that. Because we live in a day and age where, where to talk of hell is hate speech. It is unloving. It is judgmental. But please note that he mentions hell in verse 43, verse 45, verse 47 to underscore the eternal consequences of known unrepentant sin that is left unchecked, that is not repented of. Hell is mentioned here. It's the word Gehenna. Gehenna referred to a place called the Valley of Hinnom. It was a deep ravine down the valley of Jerusalem. And back in the Old Testament, this was a real place that Jesus is mentioning here. Back in the Old Testament, some of the wicked kings used to sacrifice children in this particular location. Children, little ones. And if you can believe this, in order to drown out the screams of the children who were being sacrificed there and butchered and burned, they would continually beat drums. And so the place became, came to be referred to also as the Valley of Drum as well for that reason. Years later, enter King Josiah, one of the good kings, and he turned that place, that valley, into a trash dump where people would, would throw their human waste there, their trash, their rotten, putrid food, dead carcasses of animals, and even dead bodies would be thrown there. You can imagine the smells and the stench of such a place. You can imagine the the organisms that live there. Flies all the time would permeate the place. Maggots and worms, etc. would be there because of all of the, the waste and the trash that was there. And all day long, listen to me, all day long, 24 hours a day, day and night, there would be fires burning all the waste. These fires were nonstop. These fires were unceasing. These fires were unquenching. Please pay attention. This is a real place at the time that Jesus references to point out the fact that hell, too, is a real place that never stops burning. That never ceases. That is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's why he says, if you look at verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. See, brothers and sisters and friends, we live in a superficial society where we make light of of everything. Everything's a game. Everything's a joke. Nothing is serious. But I want to remind us today of what our Lord is telling us here. We need to be reminding ourselves and others today that hell is a real place of perpetual, unending, forever consequences for our sin. If we don't turn from our sins and put our trust in Christ... There are no timeouts. 
No rest. No break times in hell. Hell is a place of severe and unceasing pain for those who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, you need to know today that God gave His Son out of His great love for the world to come and die for sinners such as you and I. There is hope in Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is renewal in Christ. There is deliverance from your sin and from God's judgment in Christ. And there is eternity that you can spend with God. Be reconciled to God today. Listen to the warnings of Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Repent of your sin and put your faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from sin and from hell's condemnation, from judgment. I plead with you today. And for those of us who are professing Christians, this is the heart of repentance that begins at conversion for us. And that should continue to be the ongoing heart that we must cultivate. The Christian not only repents at conversion, but enters a lifetime of ongoing repentance, of turning away from our sin and being renewed to be more and more like Jesus. That is the life of the genuine believer. So, beloved, this is a call for us as Christians to holiness by our Lord in strong terminology, in strong language. That we would address our sin before him. J.C. Rao writes this. This is a rule which seems stern and harsh at first sight. That is what we read here. But our loving master did not give the rule without cause. Compliance with it is absolutely necessary since neglect of it is the sure way to hell. Our bodily senses are the channels through which many of our most formidable temptations approach us. Our bodily members are ready instruments of evil, but slow to do what is good. The eye, the hand, and the foot are good servants when under the right direction. But they need daily watching, lest they lead us into sin. What's he saying? These are loving words from our Lord Jesus Christ in the light of the seriousness of sin. See, some people see this type of language here in this text, and they see this as as counter to grace. To call one another to obedience and to holiness, well, that's not grace. That's not grace. But hear me, grace doesn't call evil good. If your understanding of grace leads you to live licentiously, in a way where you have license to sin, then you don't understand grace. Grace doesn't downplay the seriousness of sin. Grace doesn't live for sin. Grace doesn't just feel bad about sin, but takes no action against sin. Grace doesn't live content and happy with sin. Some people look at what Jesus says here, and they say to themselves, well, the Lord is speaking here. He must be speaking only to the the committed Christians. Because after all, there are, pro- there are committed Christians and then there are carnal Christians, aren't there? Absolutely not. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian in the Bible. No such thing as a true Christian who reads these types of passages and says, I'm good. They don't apply to me. I got my ticket to heaven already. I'm in. I can live however I want. I rule my own life, pursue my own goals. I have my life mapped out for myself. No. No. 
Paul said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. God forbid it, he says, that we should continue in sin so that God may give us more grace. I'll sin more. God will give me more grace. I'll sin more. God will give me more grace. That is a twisted understanding of grace, if that's how you understand grace. The heart of the Christian desires to obey God's word, brothers and sisters. Out of love and gratitude to him, the Christian says, because my Lord Jesus died 2,000 years ago to pay for my personal sins, not just the sins of the world, but my personal sins. I put my trust in that sacrifice as a sacrifice by which I have been forgiven of my sins. My sins have been paid for. Because of that, I long to be like him. I long to be pleasing to Jesus. It's the heart of the Apostle Paul. In Galatians 2.20, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, here it is, who loved me and gave himself for me. Grace of God, the love of God for us in Christ compels us, moves us, moves in us to want to be like Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the believer. This does not mean that you're going to be perfect, but that there's progress in your life as you look back. This does not mean that you're, you're never going to have struggles with sin. But as Christians, we're, we're driven, brothers and sisters, by new desires, New longings, new affections. If you are in Christ, you long for holiness. You long to be obedient to the Lord. You long to serve Him. You long to be like Him. You long to see other souls come to know Him as Lord and Savior. It goes down to the the root issue of affections. And the fact that we love our Savior and we want to be like Him. Since this is our heart... What are some practical helps for us to deal with our sin this morning? Jesus taught the principle. What are some practical helps to deal with our sins? And we'll be putting these up one by one on the screen, okay? I think what this means first and foremost for us, right out of the text, is that first of all, we must take action to starve our sin, You and I must take aggressive action to starve our sin. May I exhort us this morning to take steps to to cut off sin's oxygen. To, excuse me, cut off, put it on, cut off its life support, if you will. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regards to its lusts. In other words, don't give your sinful desires any opportunity to gain a stronghold. Put them aside and put on Christ instead. Listen, this is where our theology gets very, very practical. This is where the rubber meets the road of what you know, what you claim to believe in, and how it fleshes itself out in your life as you follow Jesus. This is where the rubber meets the road, brothers and sisters. So, are you struggling? Are you in sin or struggling with ignoring your family and being disengaged? Turn off the TV, turn off the computer. 
put it away, and if need be, might I say, get rid of your stinking device, of your phone, of your computer. And hear me, electronic devices are not evil in and of themselves. Those things are not the ultimate problem, but they expose and reveal our hearts, right? Social media is not evil in and of itself. It is not the problem, ultimately the problem, but it exposes where our hearts are. And so from time to time, it might be very necessary to take sort of a, of a time off from those things. Put them off for a while to focus on your relationship with the Lord and on the, proactively on the things that you ought to be pursuing more. Are you struggling with lust today? Are you struggling with lust in a very serious way? Take drastic steps to deal with it from the heart. And that's where it begins, doesn't it? Jesus said in Matthew 5.28 that whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if we want to begin to deal with actions that are forbidden, that dishonor the Lord, we need to begin to deal with our thoughts our intentions, our sinful heart inclinations, brothers and sisters. You see, outward sin is progressive and incremental, isn't it? It doesn't just happen. It came progressively and incrementally. If I want a juicy orange from an orange tree, what do I need to do to get that juicy orange? I have to walk to my backyard Or to somebody's backyard, whoever has an orange tree, I need to walk and make my way over to that tree, then get on my tippy toes to get that orange. I need to then reach my arm as far as I can to grab that orange, to yank it off the tree. Then I need to go inside of the house, wash that orange thoroughly, peel it, and then I can partake of the juicy fruit, right? So it is with sin. It doesn't just happen that you take of the forbidden fruit. It happened incrementally, progressively. There were steps that got you there. And so you need to deal with the sinful thoughts. Confess those to the Lord. Replace those with truth, with God's word, so that you and I are not even led to the action of sinning against God and those that we love. Building on this, building on this issue of addressing our hearts, ask yourself, ask yourself, where are you going For example, to indulge in pornography. Identify those places, those physical locations where you are going to indulge in pornography. Which is a sin. It's a sin to do that. Avoid those places of isolation. Identify them and avoid those places of isolation. Use your computer or device where everybody can see. I've counseled people in the past who don't take any type of measure, protective parameters like this, and they live in continual sin in their lives, not because anybody expects them to be, to be perfect, but because of the fact that they don't, they put too much trust in themselves and they don't put parameters around themselves. So much self-confidence. I'm amazed at how many of us have unrestricted access to, to devices All the while you are struggling significantly with purity. Brothers and sisters, this should not be the case. This should not be the case. 
I think what the Lord is teaching us here is that we need to take drastic practical measures at all costs to be holy, even if we have to say no to those things that we like and enjoy, that are not sin in in themselves, but they expose our hearts. Put them away. And when push comes to shove, if holiness is at stake, get rid of those things. Get rid of those things. Yes, the problem is our hearts. But those things don't help in providing us outlets to sin against the Lord. So do whatever it takes. The issue is not how close I can get to the fire, but I don't even want to get close to the fire, right? Ask yourself, when? What time of the day am I particularly susceptible to fall in this area? In the morning? In the middle of the day? At night? When am I weakest? And can I ask you, Can I ask you along these lines of sexual purity? What are you watching on television? What are you watching in the internet? What are you exposing your eyes and your mind to, brothers and sisters? Are we being careful by the grace of God? Let me ask you, do you watch shows, movies, etc. that's stirring you a, a longing for sin, a longing for the forbidden A longing for those things that you know dishonor your heavenly Father? May I ask you today, professing believer, are you struggling with drinking, vaping, drugs? Where do you find yourself doing those things? And with whom do you hang out with? This is for older or younger. With whom do you hang out with that encourage those things in your life? Hear me. It's one thing to spend time with non-believers in order for us as Christians to influence them for Christ. It's quite another thing to be influenced by them so that they turn us away from Christ and our devotion to Christ. If you're the one being influenced, it may be that you need to cut off those relationships, those influences, those environments. What is more important to you, to be like Jesus or to hold on to those things? This is the case for those of us who are adults or younger people. We as adults are not immune to these things. By the way, a word on Christian liberties. A word on Christian liberties, such as drinking. Yeah, there's no, some people say there's no explicit verse in the Bible that says thou shalt not drink. And that's true. We are warned against intoxication of the dangers of being controlled by wine or strong drink so that we lose control of ourselves and the Spirit of God is not controlling us and moving us. That's a liberty that Christians have freedom within wise parameters to to make choices of. Maybe exposing yourself to certain entertainment, certain music. I'm talking about things that may not have a a chapter and verse in the Bible, but things that require wisdom as you expose yourself to those certain things, as you make decisions to partake of those things that you need to apply wisdom to. Listen, on that, Christian liberty is one thing. It's quite another thing to indulge yourself in the name of your quote-unquote Christian liberty. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says this, All things are lawful. That is, there are things that may be allowable, certain things that I may free to do, says Paul, but it also says, but not all things are 
profitable. That is, not everything is, is useful. Not everything is best. Not everything is most helpful for you and for others. How do you know then? How do you know? Let me give you some tests to check your heart on the issue of your Christian liberties, quote unquote. First, there is the relationship with God test. The relationship with God test. I want you to ask yourself, how is my relationship with God? How is my relationship with God? As I partake of my so-called Christian liberties, am I actively pursuing the Lord, daily communing with Him? How fervent is my walk with the Lord? And the reason I ask this is because, you see, our hearts are always worshiping. They're never neutral. John Calvin said that our hearts are like factories of worship. Our hearts are always worshiping something or someone. They are never, ever, ever, ever neutral. And so, if you're not actively, aggressively, joyfully pursuing God, being satisfied with your heavenly Father, with Christ, then chances are you're being filled with other things, other people, etc., you're being satisfied with other things. You're escaping to other things that, that fill you, that satisfy you, that meet the need that you think somehow that need is going to be met, but only God can meet that heart need. This is why Augustine once said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. I love that. I want you to ask yourself this morning, am I actively pursuing the Lord so that I'm not escaping to, to things that I know aren't contributing to my personal holiness? Listen, if your relationship with God is cold and stagnant, then the last thing that you should be pursuing or heralding or emphasizing is you are your quote-unquote Christian liberties. Secondly, Here's the second test. It's the self-control test. The self-control test. Ask yourself, genuinely, before the Lord, am I really free to say no to my so-called Christian liberty? Am I in control so that, so that I can say no on a consistent basis? Am I free to refrain from something that may not be sinful or not? Who's in control? You or that particular thing or action? Are you consistently able to bypass that to say no to that particular issue? Who's in control? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. You see, now as believers, Christ is our master. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ. So ask yourself, am I free to say no? Or do I always have to give in? If so, then by God's grace, you may need to practice some self-control in that area for a time. Perhaps refrain for a time until you are able to say no to those things. There's a third test that I want us to consider. The test of love. The test of love. Let me ask you, are you taking others into consideration in your so-called Christian liberties? 
something that may not be sin for you or is not explicitly sin in the Bible, hear me, may be sin for a weaker brother or sister in Christ, another brother or sister who has a weaker conscience, perhaps in, for one, one example, Maybe they were delivered or rescued from addiction to alcohol, or maybe their past has, has abuse connected to people in, in their family um, being addicted to alcohol. Maybe they have that past. It would be sin for you to partake of that quote-unquote liberty and not even care about that particular weaker of conscience brother or sister. And our response in those circumstances shouldn't be, well, they just need to get over it. They need to get informed. No, that should not be our response. The answer in that instance is is this. I may have a right to do this. I'm having control in that area, self-control. This is not a sin issue in my life. This is not a pattern. But I love my brother or sister more than my personal Christian liberty, so I will refrain out of love for my brother or sister. Are you practicing love in areas of Christian liberty of wisdom for the sake of the weaker brother or sister? Listen, these are good tests to check our hearts, to see where we're at before the Lord. That as we make choices in our Christian lives, that we may not be people who are being inconsiderate towards other brothers and sisters as well. Brethren, we're talking about holiness. Holiness. Holiness is of utmost priority for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters if we truly love one another. How important was holiness to Paul? Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, but I beat my body. He's speaking figuratively here. I bruise or beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Gee, Paul, are you being legalistic? What's the matter with Paul? Why is he so serious in 1 Corinthians 9.27? I'll tell you why. Because he understood that we are in the midst of a spiritual war. Even with the suffering that we are experiencing in our country and in our world. There's a war in your home, in your heart, for your holiness, believer. And as Peter would charge in his first century brothers and sisters in Christ to be holy as God is holy, so we must be reminded of the same thing in the midst of our suffering and difficulties and troubles. That we must be holy. Christian life is not like walking on a field full of daisies and roses, is it? We're walking in a, in a war zone. So fight by the grace of God in order to stand firm in the Lord, brothers and sisters. Precisely because you and I are able to do so. As Christians, we've been freed from the power of sin. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. We have His church. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have so many spiritual resources at our disposal to fight sin as believers. Once again, Brother J.C. Rowell is so helpful here. He writes, let us resolve by God's grace to to make a practical use of our Lord's solemn injunction in this place. Let us regard it as the advice of a wise physician, the counsel of a tender father, the warning of a faithful friend. 
However people may ridicule us for our strictness, let us habitually crucify our flesh with its fat passions and desires, Galatians 5.24. Let us deny ourselves any sinful enjoyment rather than incur the peril of sinning against God. Let us walk in Job's steps, who said, I have made a covenant with my eyes, Job 31, verse 1. Let us remember Paul, where he said, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize, 1 Corinthians nine twenty-seven. We need to give heed to these words, brothers and sisters. Take drastic measures against our sin by the grace of God. Now that's the putting off part, the negative side. But on the positive side, secondly, we should strive for daily communion with God. We should strive to daily commune with God. I love this. This is the proactive pursuit of a relationship with the Lord that becomes the greatest deterrent. I know of no greatest deterrent, protection or safeguard against our sin than that you be feasting on the wonderful character of your heavenly father and who he is and how much he's loved you in Christ. There's no greater deterrent, no greater protection, no greater safeguard against your sin than you would be satisfied with God. I liken this to to having a, a wonderful prime rib steak dinner with all of the fixings, mashed potatoes, you name it, all of the, your favorite vegetables, and then afterward to top it all off, an amazing dessert like you've never had before. After that, who wants junk food? Who wants to have a Twinkie after that? Isn't that the, the same way it is in our spiritual walk, brothers and sisters? When we are walking daily in communion with God, feasting upon Him, He satisfies us, satisfies us. We don't have an appetite, a craving for sin. We don't want junk food, the junk food that sin offers. We need to be spending time with the Lord every day. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. But discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the one to come. It's through the spiritual disciplines that we are daily, consistently cultivating a heart for God. Reading the scriptures. Meditating on the scriptures. Memorizing God's word so that we are putting in truth into our minds and hearts. There's a connection between communion with God and our obedience, you understand. Psalm 119 and verse 10. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Communion with the person of God leads to cherishing of the commandments of God. Also crucial here for us is prayer. Prayer, private and communal. This is where confessing our sin to the Lord and others comes. Yes, to others as well. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. We need to confess our sins to those that, that, to, that select one, two, three people that we trust, that we know love us and entrust ourselves to them and keep short accounts. But most importantly, keeping short accounts before the Lord. Confessing our sins before Him in prayer. Psalm 32 and verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. 
And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my sins to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Beloved, are you keeping short accounts before the Lord of your sin? Sin grows in isolation. We must uncover it, expose it, bring it to light. Keep short accounts with our Heavenly Father about our sin. 1 John 1, 9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 32, verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. Beloved, more than anything else, communion with God, closeness to God, endears our hearts to Him, binds and knits our hearts to our Heavenly Father. And our relationship with God then becomes the greatest deterrent, the greatest protection, the greatest safeguard against our sin. Psalm 73, verse 28. But as for me, writes the psalmist, the nearness of God is my Good. I just want to be close to Him. The nearness to be in His presence is my good. I have kept the Lord God my refuge. It's where I go. I want to be in His presence. I want to commune with Him. Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Isn't that beautiful? I just want to be with you, Lord. Be with him. Christian, sit at his feet daily that you might be like him. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. If we want to stand firm against our sin, may I encourage us with a third practical help. Run to accountability. Run to accountability. What comes natural to us? We run away from accountability, right? But listen, accountability is the friend of integrity. Accountability is the friend of integrity. You want to live with integrity? You want to be the same person in public that you are in private? Welcome accountability to your life. Invite it. Ask another Christian you know to ask you the hard questions about purity and all of those other aspects, even weaknesses in your life. Join a small group that will facilitate transparency where you will be able to share and be praying for others who are going through some of the same struggles that may shock you that you're going through. We need to be humble people and invite accountability. Proud people avoid accountability. Humble people welcome accountability because accountability is is protective. It is preserving. It is like having an umbrella as you go out to pouring rain. It covers you. It shields you. It protects you from the rain. So it is with loving accountability. It covers you. It protects you. But those who avoid accountability or are not intentional about seeking it, End up compromising. Mark it. Finally, fourth. Please, please, please. In your fight against sin, and in my fight against sin, we must remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Fix your 
eyes on Jesus, your Redeemer, who lived the perfect life that you could never live. Isn't that comforting? That we are clothed in his righteousness? That includes his perfect life whereby he he met the standard of perfection and holiness that we could never meet. Isn't that comforting? We can build on that, right? We can build on that. Focus on Jesus, your Redeemer, who died to pay for your sins. He said, it is finished. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. None. We can build on that, right? The one who rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that you are no longer under the power of sin if you're a believer. He is now your master. If you are living in known unrepentant sin, it's because you're choosing to do so. It's not because you don't, God hasn't given you the power to overcome that. When I spend time in the gospel, remembering the person and the work of my Lord, I'm comforted by his grasp of me in the midst of my daily struggle and my war against my sin. I'm reminded in the gospel at the foot of the cross that God loves me in Christ, that I am protected by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It will not pass away. It's reserved in heaven for me, even in the midst of my struggles against sin. There is security at the foot of the cross. For us who have put our faith in him. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Thank God, he writes, that my salvation does not depend upon my frail hold of him, but of his mighty grasp of me. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And later he says, my father who gave them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Beloved believers live by grace and we're sustained by the grace of God and the grace of the gospel. How comforting it is for us in the fight against sin to remember this. Finally, when I reflect on the gospel, I'm reminded that not only has Jesus rescued me from the penalty of my sin, But this is for all of us who put our faith in him. Christ wants us to experience, to experience the benefits of our salvation. Peace, assurance, gratitude, thanksgiving, happiness, joy, even in the midst of our trials, hope. Spurgeon writes, remember that if you are a child of God, you will never live happy in sin. You will never live happy in sin. And you see, if Christ wants us to experience the benefits of our salvation, when we live in sin, truly we are shortchanging ourselves, aren't we? We're missing out on the benefits of our spiritual salvation in Christ. Christ came that you and I may have life and have it abundantly, John 10.10. The Apostle John wrote this in 1 John 1, 4. These things I write so that our joy may be made full. And we walk in holiness, brothers and sisters, and experience the benefits of our salvation. Let me pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, weighty things. But how kind of you, how gracious of you, to remind us, even in the midst of the difficulties that we see in our country and all over the world, that you still desire for us to be holy people. You've given us the power to pursue that by your Spirit. You've given us your Word. You've given us your church. 
Lord, you've given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Give us the grace to be people who pursue Christ with all of our hearts and be putting off sin by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.